Okay, I am going to take a risk and not try and be too convincing up front because um, I'm going to start with four reasons I would give up on church. Um, I'm going to try not to sell them too well, but here they are. Four reasons I would give up on church. Uh, negative experiences in my past. Uh, I have been through, in my young adult days, a very uh, difficult engagement breakup in a church four weeks before my wedding. I've had a very public journey of being same-sex attracted. I've made countless mistakes as a church leader. And throughout all of those, I've been misunderstood, treated with suspicion, and asked questions that most people would normally consider exceptionally private. Uh, number two, I like fighting the establishment. Uh, I didn't know what it would mean to be in a group called the Presbyterian Church of Queensland, but it's fair to say I've become known as the guy with the squeaky wheel. At times, a little bit unusual in my theology, but not a, a heretic. And in our statewide meetings, I've been spoken about and dissected as policy is formed all while sitting in the room. Number three, I'm actually not as sure about some parts of Scripture as I feel like other people are. Um, I know there, there are parts that people seem to be really firm about, even kind of dogmatic about, but for me, there are a few things I would hold really, really tightly and not budge on, and a lot of other stuff where I'm like, well, I, I don't know if we need to worry about that too much. In that, I, I don't feel like I'm rejecting the Bible. And number four, it's actually really easy to find people who think like me, and they're not necessarily always here in this gathering. But there are people who think just the same, and I can catch up with them occasionally. We can watch the same videos, read the same articles. We're in the same kind of WhatsApp group. And that group of people, well, we share common passions. Four reasons why uh, I would leave the church. And I don't want to pretend for a second I've got a monopoly on things that I can point out. Um, some of those you might have been able to resonate with. But here's the thing, I reckon lots of people think that about church, and even when they're in that mindset, there are still a whole bunch of people who want to stay attached to Jesus, but not necessarily to his church. So even in Dolby, about a half of the town will claim kind of being Christian, which is a lot of people, about 7,000. Not just that, about 900 will identify as people who are Presbyterian, which is what brand we are. But on a given Sunday, there are about 300 or so of us who gather across the day. And amongst us, even us who come here, half of us come less than once every two Sundays. We're here about once every second week. I mean, I was away last week, so that meets the stats. There is a growing kind of breakdown in the link between people who want to belong to Jesus and the church of Jesus. Why is church, a church, this church, a good way to respond to the preciousness of Jesus? In this series we're doing called Gospel-Shaped Worship, why is the church, the gathering, a church service, just a bang-on great main part of worshipping Jesus? We're going to touch down in the book of Hebrews today, and there is so much you can say on this topic. If you're in a growth group during the week, you'll get a lot of stuff you can watch if you want and other stuff to discuss. But today we're going to see the church's preciousness as a gathering, as we see a new way, a new culture, and a better refuge that's brought about by the gospel. 
I haven't got a PowerPoint today because I've been you know, away for the week, but the three things that we're going to hang on, and if you lose concentration, you can come back, is a, a new way, a new culture, and a better refuge. What's happening in this part of the book of Hebrews is a bit of a conclusion of the work of Jesus. Everything they had been transformed by and made part of, done by the gospel of Jesus. And these first few verses go on and say clearly that they are part of a new way. There have been six chapters before this one where it's showing them the finality of the work of Jesus and the confidence they can have in the work of Jesus, in his life, death, resurrection and going to be with the Father. And now it goes to the benefits of that work. One of the benefits is they can be right next to the living God. So mind-blowing, it would normally bring death to creatures like us. But because of the gospel, Christian people can just stand next to the one who sustains the whole universe. Verse 19, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Returning to the pictures from the Old Testament uh, in the next few verses, it says that this existence with God is not dead. If you get yourself in their shoes, their experience of being around God involved a lot of death. Uh, death to people in their history who had just done the wrong thing by God or ignored God or weren't interested in him. Death by sacrifice, as animals were sacrificed to pay the price for their sin. Their relationship between God and death was so close. But now it was the resurrected and alive Jesus who brought them to God. All the layers of religious fabric are peeled back and they can be near him with confidence in verse 20 by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is Jesus' body. And this new way for them is not just something that happened in the past. They don't just look at that and kind of ride on the coattails of it. Actually, they say this new way is still happening and it doesn't require special religious people or special priests. Well, It does require a priest. Jesus hasn't clocked off here. Jesus is doing a job right now. Jesus is a non-stop data hub between God and his people. Jesus continually talking on behalf of Christians to his Father, forever joining them together in verse 21. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Not we had, but we have. The benefits of Jesus' work are this new and living way, death defeated, constant connection with a holy God. The gospel message is that Jesus brings a whole new way. And we've thought about that in previous weeks, that that this whole following Jesus is, is not just a tinkering around the edges. Saying that you and I have a whole different existence is what it's doing. And because of that, uh, Christian people will do things fundamentally weird and challenging because we're, we're part of something completely new and different. Uh, so gathering together with people ranging from nine months to 90 years old is unusual. Uh, there are a few people who are really quite talented, but the rest of us add our mediocre voices to praise God. <laughs> That's unusual. 
We give our money to make things happen. We sacrifice sports and garden and family gatherings. And we commit to a group of people in a world where changing a commitment is as easy as a swipe. It is different, and it's unusual. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's because the gospel makes us part of a new and living way of life. Remember, in my last uh, church in Brisbane, it's kind of in the northern suburbs, in Mitchelton, if it, is that northwestern suburbs, Mitchelton? And I remember we were near a military base, so lots of military families came through, and I always found it very difficult to work them out, because uh, um, I, I think at times I'm hard to get to know, but they were incredibly difficult to get to know. They'd be on one or two year rotations, and in that time they, this, they wouldn't really go to anything, they wouldn't really commit to anything, and it, it wasn't until later when someone explained it to me that I kind of started to understand it. So many towns, so many changes, so many places, so many different things. The only constant it seemed in their life was their immediate work team or the people who lived in their house. It was just so difficult to find something constant. And where we're reading today, these, these people, these Hebrews, these Christians are reminded, actually, they do have an anchor that is unchanging. They do have friendships joined together by something that will never change. Wherever they were, or whatever they lived in, the gospel had called them to a whole new culture. This is the second thing we're looking at here, this new culture defined by the hallmarks of the Christian faith. The words that come out of the, the, the bit we read here are the three things that are kind of you always see when it talks about Christians together, faith, hope, and love come out here. They were called to be confident by faith, by putting their lot in with the Lord Jesus in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. No guilt necessary. Confidence because the blood of Jesus had cleaned them up. It's what faith is, realising that it's Jesus who is strong. A new culture of faith driven by hope. Tightly wrapped in their fists was this certain future won by Christ. And so whether they're kicked around or moved around or blown around, they know that Jesus will take them to be with him forever. Verse 23, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we professed. For he who promised is faithful. Faith and hope and living in love. In this next verse, 24, love and good deeds are, are tied together in a way we kind of shouldn't, shouldn't separate. They're sort of one and the same thing. To love here means to do good deeds for others. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is the culture of the Christian family to, be, to hold out faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, to love like Jesus. And I reckon some of you would have noticed that none of it is individual. Um, we, we live in a time in history where we automatically think about the single kind of individual person without saying whether that's good or bad. That's just the water we swim in. So we think about what does it mean for my faith and my hope and my love. But in this passage, it's us. It's us together. The faith and hope and love is measured and matured and marked in us. 
verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24, let us. And verse 25 becomes the kind of natural end point of what Jesus is doing. As we head towards one another, as we embrace the gospel of Jesus, as he draws us near, we cannot help be near, but help but be near one another. Same way as when moths go towards a light, when we move towards the Lord Jesus, we can't help but bump into each other. Verse 25, he says, We're not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. Us, together, one another. A new culture, a different culture, and we're being together and moving together is what we're about. And this one's kind of obvious in what it means for our worship together. We're joined by the most astounding things. And for together to be meaningful, it really means being part of something regular and close to where you are. Because it's true, isn't it, that Christians are joined together eternally. We are in an eternal family. Uh, Look around at the people with you. A number of them you're going to be around for a very long time. We are joined together, that's true. But right now, this plays out in the local church. And to love and to encourage, to do these things in a meaningful way, we actually need to know what good deeds people need and what encouragement they need beyond the general kind of, you can do it. This letter to the Hebrew people is to people who were Jewish and have become followers of the Lord Jesus. These are not people who never gathered and then just started gathering. These are people who gathered in synagogues. They hear the gospel of Jesus. Now they gather around the Lord Jesus. Their lifestyle was people who got together and joined together, regularly living this new culture of faith and hope and love in the middle of a world living in all sorts of ways, called by Jesus together as a family, a church family. I reckon I acknowledge a bit of a problem when you talk about church as a family because uh, I think you and I both know that plenty of families can be not amazing. Um, you know, just in Queensland in 2021, there were 25,000 child safety investigations and 10,000 kids uh, removed from the care of their families. They're just the ones in the system that we know about. There are plenty of you here who have and still do experience the sadness and pain of families that just haven't worked out. Places that weren't necessarily as safe as they should be. And you know, this, this letter here for the Hebrews is to a group of people who are experiencing an immense challenge to their safety. And it finishes by telling them in the midst of that danger that everything apart from their togetherness as Christ's people would cause them problems. What they want to be, to have safety, is actually dangerous for them. The writer here wants to say, in Christ, together, they have a better refuge than anything. This last section we read, this is, this is a tricky part of the Bible And not necessarily because it's got tricky words. I think because sometimes we read it to say something it's probably not saying. You'll see what I mean as I go further. Uh, 
But this is written to people who are Jewish to the back teeth, people who have become Christian. They were in a time in their culture when Jewish people were being attacked, hassled and hounded and killed, especially Jewish Christians, and it was getting worse. Now, if you're in that situation, you will use any of your family connections you can to avoid trouble. You will flee to them. Forget being together as this new people of Christ. But you know, here, after saying how important being with one another was, Hebrews says, if you deliberately run from that, if you ignore that and turn your back on that, There will be no safety in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, we have received, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. They won't escape being persecuted if they run from church. He's really saying to these guys, You think that leaving church will be better? My answer is it won't. You know, there are plenty of places in the Bible that talk about the kind of judgment that comes after death. And I want to say this is not one of them. Uh, If you want to see those, you can actually go to plenty of places in this letter in Hebrews. Places like chapter 5 and verse 9, 6 and verse 2. You can go to 9 and verse 12, 9, 14 and 15, 9, 27, 13, 20. They're all there. But this is the language of their Old Testament people's pain on earth. The language of the times when they're in slavery in Egypt, when they're punished for whinging as they wander through the desert, when they're punished for putting their nose rings in a fire and making a fake god as Moses gets the Ten Commandments, when they're punished for having fake gods and the foreign nations come and crush them. This is the language of facing a tough time on the land that they're on. And if they run from their church, they will have no safety in verse 27, only a fearful expectation of judgment and raising fire, raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This really matters here. Because what he's talking about right now is their togetherness as the new Christian family. And he sees leaving that gathering as crushing the work of Jesus. Jesus whose blood was shed on the cross to wipe away people's sins. Jesus, who was their living priest. Jesus, who gave them a new way, a new culture. Jesus, who called them together. Do not neglect that, Hebrews, in search of comfort and safety in verse 29. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them all and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Just a few years after this, we know that horrifically uh, came an astounding moment of death and trouble for these Jewish people. Around 70 AD, the Romans really went at it. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus recounts a number of things how bad it was, but one of the things he says about the mass crucifixion of the Jewish people was that space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. The refuge from the immediate threat to God's people is their local gathering, their church, with one another. Jesus called them together. They worship Jesus together with his people. You know, um, 
10.30 for us. Uh, that means that this church, us together, we need to sit our lives, have only one safe and eternal home. You know, when you're a regular part of a church, uh, sometimes it can be really good, and other times you kind of think in your head, well, I know I'm part of an eternal forever church, and that's going to be really good. There must be something slightly closer to that somewhere, and this can be at times really underwhelming. (laughs) Um, It's eternally true, isn't it? We are destined for something that works way better, gathered around the Lord Jesus. But, you know, none of the New Testament makes any sense unless this eternal church has an incredible significance on the local gathering of God's people around the gospel of Jesus in commitment to one another. Pretty much every letter in the New Testament uh, assumes some kind of problem in churches. And they started popping up really quickly. I, I bet you didn't, like the first denominations within a generation of Jesus, they're appearing in Carthage, in North Africa, in Alexandria, in Jerusalem, in Antioch. It's happening straight away. And if these warnings are not about being together regularly with the same people, the seriousness of the consequences don't make any sense. If it was just about sort of randomly gathering with some people sometimes, that's actually really easy to do, in a sense. We are not yet the eternal perfect people of God. We are the visible, gathered local church. I think there are now some particular challenges for us. And when I say us, I mean in Dolby, in this church family, in Dolby Presbyterian Church. I think our challenge is actually knowing what kind of family we are. Um, One of the things I loved about when I came to Dolby, and I still love it, it's not as though everything has turned bad, is the immense warmth of people to start with. It's a bit of a country thing, a bit of a Dolby thing, but people are just so welcoming. But over time, often we have friendships that are kind of years long, decades long, family networks long, and it's hard to fit more people in. That's complicated. And we come to church and we say it's a family, and you look around and you think, I actually don't know their name. I really don't know anything about that person. And the only thing I do know is a little bit awkward. It's actually really challenging for church life. But the Bible gives us more than the picture of family, right? It gives us uh, the house of God. It gives us a body. It gives us the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are lots of pictures of church. And the way for us to think about this, it's probably better to think in terms of extended family. Family reunion when we gather here together on a Sunday. You know, um, this church has never sustained more than 250 to 300 people on a Sunday. And there are 14,000 people more than that in our town. And our challenge is to live as an extended family. That's why we talk about, we gather here on a Sunday in rows like this and we're in a big crowd. Uh, And one of the things we talk about is actually really helpful to be in a circle, uh, like a growth group or or a team of people that you serve with. And if you don't do that, it's actually pretty hard to get to know people. I don't talk about wanting a big church because I I want a really big church. Uh, My wife will tell you parts of me would love a commune with 15 people. But I I want a big church because the gospel demands it. And the Lord Jesus would love to see these people here with us. And they would love to be rescued. It's a challenge for us. I, I started with four reasons I could leave church. I think it's probably a good idea to start a, to finish with some reasons why we should stay. 
So to, to one-up that, I want to finish with five reasons to stay in a church family. And then we'll, then we'll finish up. Five reasons to stay. Here's number one. Christians navigate negative as a church. We work through problems together. Pretty much every single letter in the New Testament assumes a challenge in the local church. From the cultural and moral challenges in Corinth that we'll look at in term two next year, from the persecution in Thessalonica, the churches scattered in 1 and 2 Peter, the seven churches who are struggling with their faith, some of them, and adapting the scriptures in others in Revelation, the vacuum of leadership in the second generation churches in Titus and Timothy. Every local church struggling with its own challenges, experiences that come from outside and inside. But Christian churches who know they are sinners saved from sin navigate negative together. Number two, our fight against the establishment shouldn't be a fight against God's leadership. We're Australians, we can't shake off the convict thing. Uh, You know, we got here, the first church was built, they burn it down within a week. We do that. But brothers and sisters, we have a Lord with incredible authority, incredible generosity, and in his image he places people in authority over us. You guys have called me, your elders, other leaders in your ministries and groups, you've called them to be pastors over you and in doing that, you have made it that we will have to give an account for what happens. It's a challenge for us because there are bad leaders, but there is good leadership and it's a reflection of our true pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, there are some incredible things we can be sure about in the scriptures that we're called to a new and better culture through the Lord Jesus, an extended family of faith and hope and love, empowered and modeled and sustained by the Lord Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. We have the message of the gospel, and for that reason, we can be eternally positive and optimistic, even in the midst of awful things. Number four, we are better with people who don't think like us. That's hard, isn't it? But instinctively, I think we know it. Because you know when you don't know something or don't have something, what do you do? You you seek out someone who doesn't have what you've got. We're wired to be around people who are different and contribute to a better us. And number five, and I'll finish with this. Uh, This church by which I mean Dolby Presbyterian Church. These people, and what's happening here is a long and hard-fought gift of God and his people. Let me quickly run you through the history. Uh, Started in 1865 when the Reverend George Grimm had his first meetings on the other side of the mile in in the courthouse. In in 1870, realising they needed to organise things a little bit, they appointed their very first elders and had their first kind of official local church gathering. Uh, 1988, uh, sorry, 1980, they started gathering donations and interest-free loans, all from the congregation, and their first building project gathered steam. Churches love building projects. And in 1888, the very first foundation stone was laid. Uh, 1911, the church family was getting so big, they needed to add another building to what they were doing. 1933, with more growth, our new building opened. They wanted to expand and reach more people in the town as it grew, so on the corner of Aldock and Curtis Streets, they purchased new space. 1980, 
expanding and moving again, getting land on Condamine Street. And in 1992, which some of you are around for, uh, church leaders and a lot of other people, seeing that they really wanted to leave a place for the next generation to lead, uh, lead their church family, gave an enormous amount of money and time and effort to build this building and around us what we have here today. This church, with these people, is a gift from God's past people to raise the next generation of God's church family. And now it is us. Church is not for us so much as it is us. The Lord Jesus has made us part of something of immense value. And we worship him by giving value to these people. That's why our mission statement as a church family says, we follow Jesus who calls us together with a new way, a new culture, a better refuge, all through Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, we want to confess in many ways we don't think of your church well. There's so much to know about it. We want to ask this morning that you would help us to cherish those things that you love. Help us to be able to see our blind spots and invite others around us to see, help us see them. And we pray that you would help us to love and value this thing that you have died for, that you're eternally present with, that even right now you're talking to your Father about us, that we would love our church. We would delight when our brothers and sisters love their church, and what we do here would be a small but deliberate taste of the final and perfect church we look forward to. And as that happens, Lord Jesus, we pray glory would go to you. Amen.